I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no idea what's true. This is Encounter 704, a cold day in West Virginia. Today we're taking a look at Visitors from Lanulos, the 1971 book that was quote, related by Woodrow W. Derenberger to its author, Harold W. Hubbard. Indeed, the book is about the 1966 West Virginia contactee, uh, and it's often attributed to Derenberger alone, but Hubbard wrote it, apparently. And in the 1971, the original Vantage Press, Vanity Press, self-published 1971 edition, is the sole holder of the copyright. I'm a very boring person with very boring interests, so I was intrigued by this and checked the catalog of copyright entries for the second half of 1971, and yep, Hubbard is the only one listed as the copyright holder. Intellectual property rights research is fun. Uh, Now, for convenience, and because it's already ingrained in my head, I will just be referring to this as Derenberger's story throughout because it's cleaner than saying Derenberger's story as written by Hubbard. But that's not why you're here, if indeed you are. This is an interesting book. Imagine a stereotypical contact detail transported to the end of the Vietnam era. Imagine a contactee more skeptical of UFO researchers than of UFOs themselves. Imagine a book about the most notable contactee from Mineral Springs, West Virginia, that does not once mention Mothman or the Silver Bridge, despite the inexorable connection between Derenberger and those events that exists in most people's minds. Well, imagine no more. Here we go with Visitors from Lanulos. Derenberger's story in the, begins in the book very much like we heard a few episodes ago, although with a frontispiece of an alien alphabet that looks honestly, more or less like every other alien alphabet you may have seen. Slightly Greek-looking, but with elements of those symbols that represent the planets. You know you know the sort of thing. Anyway, Woody was driving down I-77 back home to Mineral Springs, West Virginia. A smiling, dark-haired man tells him, through some telepathic means, that his name is Cold and that his, he is from a country, quote, not nearly as powerful as ours, in Woody's words that he is a flesh-and-blood creature like we are, and then he gets back, and that he would see Woody again, and he gets back into a spaceship and leaves. And the next day, Woody relates that he had his interview on WTAP, which you can hear the audio of portions of it in our previous episode, and he begins to get inundated with publicity. After that, the next day, on November 4th, 1966, he has another contact with Cold, now given the first name Indrid. Cold tells Woody a bit about the climate on his home planet of Lanulos. Mr. Cold told me he was from a planet called Lanulos. He said that it was located close to the galaxy of Ganymede, although I have since come to believe that Mr. Cold gave me the wrong location for their own safety. He told me that his planet was practically the same as ours, that they have woods, fields, and streams, and oceans as we do. He also said that he had taken samples of our vegetation and also some of our animals 
and with very few exceptions, these were the same as they have. He also told me that he was married, and that he had two sons aged 8 and 11, and that his wife's name was Kimmy. Since the previous time, a baby girl had been born to them. They named her Kimilis. Note, I've heard Lanulos, I've heard Lanulos, I've heard Lanulos, I've heard Lanulos, I've heard all pronunciations. The pronunciation may vary throughout this episode, because it just will. Anyway... The publicity around Woody and his story increased as it was picked up by AP, UPI, wire services, and and things like the TV networks. Uh, People would come and hang out at the Derenberger property looking for flying saucers, and this went on for months. We know, interestingly, we know from previous episodes that there was a significant wave of UFO sightings in the Ohio Valley at the time. But in Derenberger's book, there's no mention of the Mothman sightings, and it's just sort of... Flying saucers hang out with Woody Derenberger. Let's go to Woody Derenberger's house and wait for the saucers. In the book, he really does present uh, these events in isolation from everything going on in the region. All of this publicity was difficult for Derenberger's family, especially his young children at first. Our son Greg, seven, was given a very hard time at school. The children called his daddy a liar. They became so cruel that my wife finally went to the school and talked with his teachers. This helped only slightly. Greg became very nervous, as did our daughter, Tanya, four. They wouldn't go to bed because they were so afraid of all the voices they could hear outside. This eventually led to them both having nightmares and screaming during the night. Derenberger also discussed how he was investigated by various entities, including NASA. During that time, I told my story to a man who was introduced to me simply as Charlie the head man of NASA. I was interrogated every night for five days, and after listening to my story several times, I was told that I had told them nothing that they did not already know. I'm almost sure that they knew of the planet of which I had told them. Several other people had told them the same kind of experience. I asked them why they would not release this to the public, and was told if they did it, it would cause a panic. Women would commit suicide, throw babies out of windows, jump under trains, etc., and that this kind of panic could sweep across the whole world. I did not agree with them then, and I still don't. What their reasons were for covering up their investigations, I don't know, nor can I think of any valid reason for doing so. Derenberger also talks about his dealings with NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, the boring great-uncle of UFO research at the time, full of very serious-minded people. They wanted... Um, he says, what he says, NICAP wanted exclusivity to his story, to be the only people that he talked to. Earlier writings, uh, John Keel's documentation of the time, other things indicate that it wasn't NICAP at the national level who was uh, sort of putting a lot of pressure on Derenberger to only talk to them, rather that it was, I think, the Pennsylvania State NICAP organization. So I don't want to sort of smear all of NICAP at the time with this brush of being really pushy with Derenberger. I do want to smear NICAP with the brush of being incredibly boring and uninteresting most of the time. This demand for exclusivity sort of set Woody off, and he told the NICAP people, quote, I would talk to whom I pleased, and he said they were very angry. So Woodrow then, and and one of his friends, a guy named Harold Salkin, met with another contactee in, I believe, New York, a college student named Ed who told them of his own trip to Lanyolos. Ed said he had been stopped on the highway in the same manner as I had, and was later contacted in a restaurant where he was working as a part-time waiter to help pay for his college expenses. 
One night after he had quit work, he was dropped off in front of his apartment by a fellow employee. Another car drove up, and the man that he had talked with previously, called Vadig, asked him to get in the car. He then asked Ed if he would like to go for a ride on a ship. Ed agreed to go and was taken to Lanelos. He described the landscape, the buildings, the people, and also the flying sleds. The things he saw were the same as I had, yet the Air Force, NICAP, CIA, and Project Blue Book withhold all the evidence of different people describing these planets in the same way, which would prove these contactees have been contacted. Note how Woodrow lumps NICAP in with the Air Force and the CIA with covering up Ed's experiences. This is interesting. Derenberger's assessment was that NICAP was unfairly and unjustifiably suppressing contactee stories. And that is not an outrageous claim at all. Going back to the classic contactee days of the 1950s, NICAP was solidly in the business of cataloging sightings and pretty much just doing that. Oh, they also whined about the Air Force, but... but Those were the two things they basically did, catalog sightings and whine about the Air Force. Woodrow also gets harassed by the men in black, which was par for the course in West Virginia in the late 1960s. In August of 1967, when I was still manager of an appliance store in Parkersburg, West Virginia, I was visited by two men dressed entirely in black who warned me to stop talking so much about flying saucers. They would not identify themselves, but just said they had authority to stop me. My personal opinion is that these and all the men in black are from the Mafia. I am still talking and will continue to do so until the space people land and make themselves known to every one of our people. I think his Mafia connection between the men in black and and organized crime, I I think that's interesting. It's not the first time I've, I've seen that, but it's not one of the generally associated things with the men in black. He'll return to the men in black and sort of what he thinks they're up to and why later in the book. During his next meeting with Indrid, Woody tries to explain some of the flaws and foibles of the planet Earth. I tried to tell him of our way of life. It seems so much more complicated than theirs. I told him of our different religious beliefs, which baffled him completely. I couldn't explain it to them, for I'm baffled too. When I finished telling him of all of our different beliefs and our unbelievers, he was really mixed up, but as he said... I am not a superman. I can understand why he didn't understand our religion. I could also not tell him why we have wars, why we can't get along with our own neighbors, let alone try to explain why we can't live in peace with different parts of our world thousands of miles away. I became so confused trying to explain it all that I asked him to tell me why we live in fear and hatred. He told me it was the inability to communicate with each other, that words alone are not enough. We have to show each other we are concerned about one another. And the Lanulosans respond by telling uh, Woodrow how their highly developed telepathic communication came to be. In the beginning, a spaceship crash landed on Lanolos, supposedly from Earth. The space travelers, male and female, immediately started working to repair the ship. They worked for several years trying to get the ship to fly. They began quarreling among themselves on how to repair the ship. They finally became so angry at one another that they started leaving the group with their families to make their own way. Finally, no one was left to repair the ship. They were all trying to make a living at what we call farming. These individual family groups began to get very lonely and realized the futility of the anger that had separated their party. They began thinking more and more of their friends, wishing they could talk to them but not knowing where they had settled and being afraid to travel too far from their own home. All they could do was wish and think of their friends and hope to meet them again someday. 
their wishes to communicate with their friends became so intense that one time a man realized he was hearing the thoughts of a man whom he had been closely associated with. Their thoughts eventually drew them together. Realizing what their intense desires had accomplished for them, they gave thanks to God and concentrated on the other people of the party. And that was the beginning of mental telepathy. I like this a lot. I like the idea that there was a historical evolutionary, sort of, kind of, reason for the Lanulosians to have their telepathic powers, as opposed to just sort of taking as read that space people would have these powers, usually as a narrative device to explain away language barriers. I also think the notion of Earth being the origin point for the people of Lanulos is a nice touch. It's refreshing for us to be the ancient aliens once in a while, instead of people from Sirius or something. Next, Woody takes his first trip in the spaceship. It's pretty low-key, uh, involving Indrid Cold and his co-pilot Carl Ardo. They fly through the solar system and eventually go to Lanulos. It's just a quick aerial overview, though, since Woody hasn't had the proper immunizations, but a trip was coming soon. Woody would be met by a number of space people and their ship and told, it's time to go to Lanulos. Get on board. We'll hide your pickup truck. And this is sort of the story of that. As I was going towards Pomeroy, I had almost reached the city when I received a message from Indrid Cold telling me where to meet him, that he wanted to take me someplace. I went to a place that was about halfway between Reedsville, Ohio and Tupper's Plains, Ohio. On this road, I was told by Indrid Cold through mental telepathy where to drive my truck. When I reached the place, he told me his ship was already there and waiting for me. I was told that if I wanted to, I would be taken on a trip to Lanolos. I first planned to leave my truck where I had met the ship, but one of the men said that my truck was sure to be found and someone would question why it would be left in such a lonely place. The plan was then that Indrid's friend Clinell, a man from the planet Seranibus, would drive my truck back to Pomeroy, Ohio and park it in the town itself where it would draw no attention. Clinell did drive my truck back, and a woman by the name of Elvane Kletaw drove a Volkswagen belonging to Clinell. When I entered the ship, I met Indrid Cold, his wife Kimmy, Carl Ardo, second in command, and two other men whose names were Tony and Daryl, members of the crew. Just a note on the names here. Darren Berger's story has some of the least spacey names in all of Contact Edom. Perhaps this is to reinforce the connections, the ancient connections between Earth and Lanulos. Or maybe it's just that Darren Berger wasn't great with coming up with spacey names. In any case, I love the idea of a couple shabby, slightly disreputable looking space dudes called Tony and Daryl. I was going to put in some sort of reference to it would have been great if there would have been a spaceman Larry and a spaceman Daryl and his other space brother Daryl. But then I realized that that reference would make me sound even older than I am. Woody gets all his shots on the way to Lanulos, and, and when he gets on the planet, he samples food, visits some homes that are slightly, slightly but suitably futuristic, and he's taken to several cities, what are called gatherings, on their planet. He also meets some earthlings who immigrated to Lanulos. As we were coming back from making an inspection of Gathering 28, I was asked if I wanted to meet a family from Earth that was taken directly from Earth to Lanulos 40 years ago, and it made their home here. I told Indrid that I was very anxious to meet this family, and I was taken to a little farm and introduced to John and Carolyn Peterson from Acapulco, Mexico. These people looked to be about 50 or 55 years of age. They were very spry and very active. When I went up to their place, they were playing a game that I would like to say was very much like our tennis. After I talked to them, and they told me how long they had been there and how well they liked it, 
I asked John Peterson how old he was. He told me he was 90 years of age and his wife was 85. I could not get over how happy and contented they were. They had raised seven children on this planet and were very happy and had no desire to return to Earth. Needless to say, after all of this, Woodrow Derenberger is a big fan of the planet. I have only the highest regard for all the people I met on Lanolos. I hope and pray that these people can teach all of our people the way they live, because there they have the closest thing to a paradise that I ever hoped to see. They loved one another. They trusted one another. They sang. They laughed. They had the most wonderful sense of humor that I ever saw in anybody. Someday, I hope we'll all be joined together and can live as the people of Lanolos and other planets that I know. I don't know whether we will go to Lanolos to live or not. I do really want to go, but I know I can be of so much more use here on Earth, trying to spread the word of these people. These people mean no harm to us in any way. They have a doctrine of life that they say they can teach us very shortly if they could land among us to teach our officials and our people their way of life. Like most, if not all, contactees, Darren Berger spends a little time explaining aspects of life on Lanulos, for the most part in a way that, of course, makes the planet seem superior to Earth. In warm weather, they do not wear clothing at all, except for formal gatherings or dancing. I asked how come they go nude and got the same answer that our nudists give here. God made them as they are, and they are not ashamed of their bodies. When I was there, I went as they do, and was not the least bit self-conscious. It just seemed the perfectly normal thing to do. Honestly, I really think Woodrow just is trying to promote nudism here. Um, I don't know if Derenberger was an active nudist. I, I'm not sure of any good way to find out that information. I've actually got some good ways to find out that information, but I'm not going to. Not that there's anything wrong with it if he was. The Lanulosians are pretty fit, probably pretty fit. Um, they eat a good diet consisting of lots of fruits and vegetables, lean beef and seafood, no chocolate, no pork, and no bleached flour. Their food is all organic as well. They have coffee, but the caffeine has been removed, meaning, of course, that the Lanulosians are worse people than the Greys and David Icke's shape-shifting reptilians put together. And I think the economic system on Lanulos is interesting. I think the thing that impressed me more than anything else was their monetary system. Although everyone works that is able to work, everyone is paid not according to his or her skill, but rather according to the size of their family and needs. They are given what they call credits or script, and when they buy something, they write the article on the credit or script and give it to the clerk in the store, where it is kept for inventory purposes only, so that they know what to replace. No one ever has to live in want. One can have all the credits he needs. I asked them if this was a communistic way of life, and they said no, it was the free will of the people. I know by actual experience that they are truly a classless race of people. The top man in the guiding council is considered no better than the man who digs ditches. This kind of Star Trek-style post-scarcity economy is, is pretty typical in these kinds of stories, but I'm not sure many other contactees have gone into the level of detail about the, the sort of bookkeeping mechanics of this kind of space commerce. Of course, by 1970-71, when Derenberger and Hubbard were working on this account, there had been numerous stories of extraterrestrial encounters that were at odds with the classical space brothery tales of the contactees. And Derenberger was firmly in that contactee camp. At times when you read this, it's very easy to forget that this book appeared almost two decades after Adamski's account and that we're more than 20 years into the modern flying saucer age that began with Kenneth Arnold. Derenberger's solution 
to smoothing out these various types of encounters is to introduce and explain different types of beings inhabiting the universe or multiverse, such as the humanoids. Humanoids have a human's features and build except around their eyes. They are very red and wrinkled. For hair, they have something that resembles small pin feathers on a chicken. These creatures come from a planet that is completely out of our universe. On this planet, if any object is left unattended, it belongs to whoever picks it up. So when they steal here, it's not stealing to them, but simply the way of life that they're used to. They are completely harmless and will not for any reason physically harm anyone. So they're harmless, but they steal stuff. But that's okay, really, because they're not from around here. I'm showing my age a little here again, uh, but I, I imagine injured explaining the humanoids to Woody, kind of like Basil Fawlty saying he's from Barcelona about Manuel on episodes of Fawlty Towers. Yet, for all their complete harmlessness, we have this. We watched them for about 15 minutes when all 11 ships lifted into the air and went straight up. Indrid told me that they were escorting the humanoids to the very edge of our universe, and they had agreed to never come back. Until this day, I've never seen or heard of the pink ships again, although before this, these pink ships were reported all over the USA and other countries. Indrid told me that the people that Betty and Barney Hill had their experience with were humanoids. So I'm not sure how to rectify the complete harmlessness of the humanoids with this revelation. I'm wondering if, perhaps, part of this could be explained by the fact that the Hill story is now so well known as sort of the Ur abduction that it's difficult to put ourselves in the position of someone in the late 60s or early 70s. Still, the whole thing strikes me as odd. Um, any sort of reading of John Fuller's book or the articles about the Hill's, uh, honestly, abduction experience I wouldn't say completely harmless is is the phrase that would that would come to mind. So Woodrow is given a nice tour of the earth in his saucer. Uh, and during this portion of the book, we have another great example of a Woodrow Derenberger alien name, a woman named Buildeen Vaus. Buildeen. It just sounds I don't know if this makes sense to anybody but me. It sounds like one of those old lady names from when I was a kid that is inexplicably making an odd but kind of welcome comeback. You know, sometimes you, you meet people and they've named their daughter like, like Emmeline or something. Um, I, I just, I'm waiting for a Buell Dean to show up. Derenberger then relates some humorous stories related to his contacts. And this includes what might be the best, one of the, some of the best stories in the book, including this one where Derenberger's celebrity helps a young man with his love life. Another night, I had stopped in a small restaurant for dinner about 9 p.m. I had just started eating when a group of our young people came in and sat down in the booth directly behind me. I soon noticed that my name, Woody, was being used several times. As I listened, I wondered where this man received all his information. I will never know, but he was telling his friends that he was a good friend of mine, and he knew all my brothers and sisters, as well as my wife and children, naming them all by name. He told his friends that they could believe every word that I said about my experiences, for he had known me all of his life. Having my back to him, I could not see his face, nor could I recognize his voice. After I finished eating, I went to the cashier, paid my check, then walked back past their booth so I could see who was such a good friend of mine. I had never seen any of them before. I took a business card from my pocket, handed it to him, smiling. He took one look at my card, jumped up from his seat, took me by the arm, and escorted me outside the restaurant. 
he said. Please, Mr. Derenberger, don't give me away. My friends are so thrilled by your experiences, and I, I want to impress my girlfriend by saying I know you personally. I wished the young man luck, and I had a good laugh over it. Later, he came to see me, and we did become good friends. And this one, where Woody relates the story of his pregnancy rumors. Somehow a rumor got started that I was pregnant and had to go back to Lanelos to be delivered, where it was natural for men to give birth instead of women. How it got started, I don't know, but I received dozens of letters asking if it were true. After a while, it ceased to be funny, and one day I was demonstrating a stereo to a lady when she said, I would like to ask you a question, but I'm ashamed to. Knowing perfectly well what she was about to ask me, I told her to go ahead and ask me anything she wanted to. She said, is it really true that you're pregnant? I replied, yes, ma'am. Then she said with a look of amazement, you're kidding. How will it be delivered? I answered, I don't know. They just told me that when it was time, they'd take me to Lanulose for delivery. I never told her that I was kidding, but I sure got a big laugh out of that one. There are also, in the book, some great illustrations with some actual plates, not just line drawings, of Lanulosian scout ships and motherships, as well as diagrams of the control panels. Just outstanding stuff. Derenberger gets a bit more serious in a chapter entitled Effects of the Visit, and he discusses how his wife and children reacted to their experiences meeting the spacemen, including from his son Gregory, who wrote an essay about the spacemen for a school assignment. Earth Star Date 468. Our purpose here is to help people through guidance. Our forefathers were intelligent enough to build a spaceship. They took off through the Earth's atmosphere and landed on a strange planet, which one we do not know. They lost their guidance for building a spaceship and got along the best they could. Finally, they received the guidance back they needed for building a spaceship. Soon they made a gigantic spaceship called the Mothership. Through the years, more motherships and scout ships have been made and are getting more modern every year. We believe in being born again and going from different levels until we reach the point of perfection. Right now, we are on our third test. People on Earth are different from the other planets because they don't know what the word love means. All they know is hate, hate, hate. We are trying to persuade people that this is wrong, but all we get in response is outrage. Our friends from space have been shot and almost killed. We are still fighting a never-ending battle for peace and friendship by Greg Derenberger. And also some experiences that his daughter Tanya had. My little girl, Tanya, while too young to understand all that is going on, has made fast friends with Indrid and Carl. She doesn't care where they come from so long as they play with her. Many times when the four of us are out riding in the car, she'll be the first to see Indrid's ship following us. She always lets out a little squeal saying, There's Indrid, Daddy. That's his ship. She never mistakes an airplane or star for his craft. She seems to know it instinctively from any other object. At home, Tanya has a large box which she pretends is her ship of Mars. In it, she says she can make a trip to Mars in nothing flat Earth time. Derenberger also vi visits Venus and uh, Orthon, seeming to confirm the stories of George Adamski, who had, by the late 1960s, not only died, but had become pretty well roundly dismissed among serious saucer researchers. There are some heavy sarcasm quotes around the word serious there, of course. We're nearing the end of the book, and Woody visits New England, making friends with other saucer believers, and they come to the conclusion that the only hope for humanity is to promote knowledge of our brothers and sisters from space. All of the people that we met here agreed that the only hope for our world is to accept the space people, to observe the way they live and love, and to accept their love as our own. Della is in contact with people all over the world who have had sightings and talked with space people, 
and who all agree that we need the space people to show us the way to live like brothers. Woodrow returns to his theme of contactees being important, describing one incidence of a well-known but unnamed broadcaster making a move to the lovely Lanulos. Shortly after my first meeting with the space people, I was invited to tell my experience on a certain radio program. The moderator on this show absolutely refused to believe any part of my story. One year later, I returned to his program and found out that this radio personality had, since my first show with him, been in contact with the space people himself. Of course, he cannot tell of his experience with the space people. He told me he was going to try to go to Lanolos to work as a newscaster. He'd already asked Injured Cold to see if this was possible and was told that he could. He will make his last broadcast here by telling what has happened to him and where he is going. I certainly hope to hear this broadcast soon. Derenberger, much as he did when discussing the humanoids, seeks to clear up some of the discrepancies between different appearances and behaviors of space people. And you may recall our many stories of strange happenings in South America. You, you remember those, right? You can go back and listen in the archives if, if, you, uh, if you don't. Here's one example from Derenberger. Two employees in a Medora casino, Carlos Pecnetti, 26, and Fernando Jose Villegas, 29, told local police that when driving home, their cars suddenly stopped. And then we saw, said the men, a strange machine looking like two inverted soup plates hovering about three feet over a vacant lot. A powerful light came from underneath. We couldn't move. Then five little dwarves came out and spoke to us in a strange language which somehow we understood. They took blood samples from our fingers, and we felt magnetized. When I read this report, I asked Indrid who these people were, and he told me they were from the planet Jamma. They were a very friendly race of people who very seldom grow taller than four feet six inches in height, and the average height of these people is three feet ten inches due to the genes of their race. They are dark in color and very slim. They were highly skilled in all things mechanical and are very proud of their ability to create and make almost anything they desire. Their creations are the best and are used by every world in the intergalactic circle. Here again is an example of how all the worlds in the intergalactic circle share the best from each world. The JAMA, a new planet, new people. I really do love this book. Now, why are they in South America? Because these little people from the world of JAMA, led by a man by the name of Marma, are letting their ships be seen so many times in Argentina, they are already making friends with thousands of South Americans. But in Argentina, as in the United States... There are forces that attempt to suppress knowledge of the space people. There is in that country, as well as here in the United States, however, wild rumors started to frighten people. Some say that the men in black are space people that are going around threatening people. This is ridiculous. If they wanted to frighten people, they would simply use their ships or power of telepathy to threaten people. The men in black never threaten people unless they appear in person and speak directly. These men simply are part of an organized group of people who have set out to frighten people of UFOs and space people and to discredit any and all contactees they possibly can. Who are these people? Anyone who is afraid of losing his own worldly power or authority over the people here who are less fortunate than he. This kind of person, who has power over people, either financially or otherwise, is afraid that if the space people land among us, his power would be taken from him. That it would be, for all men are equal. They can show us how to live this way. It is not for the power people to decide how we should live, but for the masses of people who have no say at all about how to live. Everyone should be working for the good of all people. No one would be afraid of losing his wealth, for everyone would be wealthy and well-being 
knowing that he can have what he needs. As Indrid Cold has so many times said to me, God put man here for three things, to serve God, to serve his fellow man, and to grow in spirit and love. To do this, we must work together for the good of all. As the book comes to a close, Darren Berger discusses what he sees as the ongoing flying saucer cover-up, taking on the numerous explanations that authorities have given for sightings. Why do they try to discredit people in this country who are highly educated, and this includes our astronauts? Are we supposed to believe all these upright citizens are hallucinating on LSD? What does the government really think of the intelligence of the American people? Twenty years is quite a long investigation on any subject for someone to tell us finally that we are having mass hallucinations. Next, we will all be asked to take some kind of cure to straighten our minds out. He also makes a point of noting that pilots, police, and others, who most of us would consider to be reliable witnesses, have seen flying saucers and other strange things. Many of them, however, do not choose to speak about these issues. State and city police officials don't want these policemen chasing flying saucers. Why? Is it because they have their orders to keep hands off? I think so. In April of 1968, several policemen reported seeing a large cone-shaped object over Ohio and Pennsylvania. Few, if any, will talk about their sightings now. Ask them why they won't talk, and they say, We have families to support. We don't want to lose our jobs. Don't get me wrong. I love the country I live in. I served with the U.S. Signal Corps attached to the Air Force. I would be willing to serve again and die for my country if necessary, but it makes me sick to know that certain types of people are permitted to spout off all kinds of obscenities about our country and its people. Yet our police officers, who are in these times of racial unrest, serving their country just as dangerously as our boys in Vietnam, are not permitted to report publicly what they see. Yes, I'm an American and proud of my heritage, but my loyalty belongs to the people of my country, not to crooked politicians. Now, Darren Berger and his story featured in writings about the Ohio Valley complex of events at the time. Gray Barker's The Silver Bridge contains an account of Barker and Keel's visit to Darren Berger and their interview with him. And one of the things highlighted here is the astoundingly low-tech nature of the Lanolosian spacecraft, something that, that Darren Berger really doesn't touch on in the same way in Visitors from Lanulos. I don't think you buy it, John, but there are little things that make you wonder. For instance, that strange little detail of the ordinary bunk beds that he saw on board the craft, and the CB-type radio he described as being used by the spacemen. These were things Woody has often seen right here on Earth. Now, if you were making up a science fiction story, surely he could dream up some weirder gadgetry to go with it. In Barker's account, Keel attempts to rationalize an explanation for the Derenberger experiences that may actually be just as weird as visits from spacemen, or at least as disturbing. John, level with me. There is something somewhere in Derenberger's story that shakes you up, isn't there? Not exactly, but I think you're on the right track when you mention the somewhat glaring inconsistencies, such as the CB radio and the bunk beds, apparently Earth-made. I think it would be most disturbing, however, if, say, the contacts had been real, but that Indrid Cold, or whoever he actually was, had been deliberately lying to Woody. In The Silver Bridge, one of the episodes Barker illustrates features Indrid Cold and his co-pilot Carl Ardo, and it provides some speculative fun about the nature of their mission, their connection with Darren Berger, and, uh, and, and the technology that their ship contains. Indrid Cold adjusted his flying cap and held up the reflector. A greatly enlarged version of himself startled him. Then he turned the shaving mirror and looked into the normal side. The cap gave him a jaunty appearance. 
It had appeared, as had so many other things, quite suddenly inside the chest of utility. He glanced at his panion, Carl Ardo, for approval, but he was busy working at the controls. Carl was in extraordinarily good spirits, probably because of the brand new uniforms they had suddenly been gifted with just an hour or so before the appearance of the flying caps. These were indeed more comfortable than the shiny metallic garb they had discarded, and even more so than when they had worn no clothing at all. They had been so cold then. Other changes in the spaceship had been for the better. The ancient CB radio set, which really had no function other than to squeal, had been replaced with shiny new gear, with a bright, wide silver screen on which entertaining and rapidly dissolving scenes appeared. They displayed what clearly must be other worlds, with fantastic cities, wild, ever-changing colors, and happy people smiling and exhibiting their beautiful nude bodies. Indrid speculated why he had been so uncomfortable before he had received his first clothing. Perhaps it had something to do with the atmosphere of this planet. Other improvements were still needed, however. The spaceship could be larger and roomier, and better control was desired, particularly in rough air, where it bounced uncomfortably. And the old-fashioned, overstuffed Stofa was still there. It was anachronistic with the modern design of the spaceship, but these flaws were minor, and their craft probably would make drivers of other spaceships green with envy, if, indeed, there were other such ships. Indrid had not seen any of them yet. Surely he and Carl could not be the only drivers gambling in the air envelope of this planet. Other improvements, no doubt, would come shortly. He hoped the interpreter would improve the one wall, obviously hurriedly built to complete the spaceship. It consisted of rough clapboards, probably torn from some long and painted house. When the wall was refurbished, Indrid hoped it would be replaced by a large screen, like the smaller one, so that he could look at the happy people and see them in better detail. Perhaps he could make friends with these culture units who did not want to be friendly with him. It had been said by the interpreter that if they flew too close and attempted to wave and smile at them, these creatures would turn dischargers on them. Large guns, large guns, that had been the term, not dischargers, and wound them. He was certain the interpreter was correct about this, but still he was sad about it, and thought that not all of the culture units would do this. Indrid would like to be free to fly to these outer climbs, but of course there were the silver cables, tied to his hands and feet, also similarly to Carl's body, and to the spaceship itself. Through the walls of the spaceship they stretched downward, sometimes hanging loosely in great arcs, sometimes taut. The attachments did not seem to bother Carl. These silver cables were the impediment, he felt, which separated him from the lush scenes on the screen. He could take one of the wire cutters and disengage them, but that would no doubt displease the interpreter. In his letter to Robert Schieffer that we cited in our previous episode, Barker explained a bit about this section and offered some interesting insight into his ideas, or what he claimed were his ideas at the time, you can never tell with Gray Barker, about the nature of myth and of reality. When we actually meet Indrid Cold and Carl Ardo, the names Darren Berger ascribed to the spacemen, in their saucer, they are real in some ways, but also disquietly unreal when we get the impression that their reality depends a great deal on the authority of the interpreter, who is, of course, Darren Berger. Their view of the ground below as a map-like image also helps to establish the fantasy. While I may not be able to admit that Darren Berger's account is untrue, I can cloak my doubts in a kind of middle ufological kind of thinking and ask, do these spacemen exist as independent entities, or has Darren Berger wholly or partially created them into a powerful and compelling myth? Can the myth become real if enough people believe? Now, 
John Keel provided an introduction for Darren Berger's book, which interestingly was written in 1968, although Visitors from Lanulos came out in 1971. We're going to look at Keel's introduction when we cover his account of the Mothman tale down the road. Darren Berger died on March 7, 1990, at the age of 73, and Visitors from Lanulos has been republished by an outfit that does a lot of this sort of thing. Um, there are some differences between that edition and the original, however, and I'd like to talk a little bit about that as we finish up. The reprint edition available on Amazon lists Woody Derenberger as the author. It's copyrighted 19... No, sorry. It is copyrighted 2014 by Woodrow Derenberger, an impressive feat since he died in 1990. The original 1971 copyright, as we talked about, was held by Harold Hubbard, but I have no first-hand knowledge of if or when that copyright was transferred. It includes an introduction by Tanya Derenberger Bowman, Woodrow's daughter. In this introduction, she explains that Harold Hubbard, according to John Keel, excised some important information before the book was published, but that because she has Derenberger's original manuscript, they were able to restore those bits or something. It's kind of vague. Tanya's written another book, called Beyond Lanulos, which discusses her recollections of her father's experiences and she's, and, and things that happened to their family afterward. And she seems to be completely devoted to her father's story, even after all these years. So perhaps it's because of this other manuscript that there are so many changes in this 2014 edition from the original 1971 version. Chapters are retitled, and some are missing, there are five entire chapters missing, actually, with the book ending with the chapter on the JAMA. The text itself has been changed as well in some places, and some of these changes are significant. What matters to me, as a historian foremost and as a flying saucer guy a distant second, is that unless you have access to good interlibrary loan services or loads of money to spend on one of the few rare copies that are ever for sale, you cannot read the actual words in any easy way. Why? I'm not sure. I'm looking into it. I hate to be all vague. I really do hate to be vague, but I'm not done examining the differences between the books fully or making my inquiries. So stay tuned for the results of, of that investigation at a future date. I hope. For now, just be aware that the new edition on Amazon is incomplete and finding the original version is difficult. Work your local library. If you have access to an academic library, work on that as well for interlibrary loan purposes. If you don't, try to get it. In some states, I know that if you're a resident, you can get access to some library services at state universities. There's also, honestly, a lot of orphan works that have been scanned and put out there on the internets. Look around. Do not ask me where to find stuff because I won't tell you because I can't afford a lawyer this week. But y'all are clever people. So, you know, you know, go do your thing, clever people. In any case, Derenberger's story, as presented here in the original version, is remarkable for a number of reasons, chief of which is the audacity to come out with what amounts to a classic 1950s contact detail during the era of Nixon and Watergate. Why? Why did I say Watergate? I meant Vietnam. Um, I'm not going to go back and edit that. The era of Nixon and Vietnam. Why? 
He describes numerous times in the book that he and his family were harassed and mocked for their stories. He had to move several times. Eventually, his marriage fell apart. He can't have made a huge amount of money off visitors from Lanulos, and eventually he went pretty quiet about it. It was the wrong era for big money speaking tours or gaining a following at Giant Rock or Buck Nelson's gatherings at his farm in Missouri. So why? Maybe it all happened. Maybe something happened, as John Keel suggested, that wasn't alien, but maybe was meant to be seen as alien for whatever reason. A contactee hoax, where the contactee is one of the victims rather than the perpetrator. Next time, we leave the Ohio Valley for a Halloween-ish excursion to the world of 19th century spiritualism and its intersection with interplanetary contact. There's going to be poetry, folks. Poetry and psychometry. So tune in next time for Encounter 705, The Psychometric Express. Thank you this week to the Michigan E-Library for their interlibrary loan services and to Michigan State University who made visitors from Lanulos available for borrowing despite its rarity and value. I half suspect they're not aware of its rarity and value, and they're lucky I'm an honest man who will return the copy to the library by the due date. The Saucer Life Encounter 704 was written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. You can explore the archives at saucerlife.com, and you can follow along on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com, and you can subscribe everywhere you find podcasts. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. <laughs>